can see in the bulletin if you've looked there the the theme as we take one more look in, at Job and the suffering of Job. Uh, we're going to take a look at his friends and would-be counselors. And um, what are some truths we should learn about counseling others during times of suffering? And so that'll be the focus of our message, but we're also looking forward to hearing the membership testimonies of Darrell and Nancy Rist. Got to hear them in private, and we're looking forward to them giving their testimony before our church um, family tonight. So a couple special things. Uh, I'd like to ask you to turn, if you haven't yet, to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's been a text that we're looking at during this first month of the year. It was in 1949 that a senior Bible major at Wheaton College wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it was seven years after that, in January of 1956, that headlines of newspapers, magazines all over the country, uh, reported that Jim Elliott of Portland, Oregon, and Nate Saint of Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania, Pete Fleming of Seattle, Washington, Roger Udarian of Billings, Montana, and Ed McCauley of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. All five of those men had been killed by the Aka Indians, the very tribespeople to whom they had gone to tell about Jesus. And each of those men were husbands. Uh, between them, they left behind nine children. And you wonder if at any point in that whole proceeding, and you don't need to wonder at this point, that uh, there is no doubt that in the mind of Jim Elliott, and I think we can say from all the testimonies, even of those five widows that were left behind, that they are more convinced than ever he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I think they were convinced of that by faith. But the aftermath also adds encouragement to that faith. Time magazine sent in a reporter by the name of Carnell Kappa to the Ecuadorian jungle after the slayings to interview those five widows. And by his own testimony in his report, he found no one feeling sorry for themselves but each one sweetly resigned to the will of God. Within two years, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and Nate Saint's sister went back into the jungle, and they were used of the Lord to win several of their killers, their, their loved ones' killers, to the Lord. Eventually, as some of you know the rest of it, Nate Saint's, two of Nate Saint's children were baptized in the Curai River, by one of the very men who threw the spears that killed their father. Uh, today, uh, these people still live, as I understand it, in one of the most primitive jungles, but there are reports of a thriving body of believers in that tribe. And I know I keep saying it, but he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is uh, an understatement to uh, note that the dedication of these men and women stands out in stark contrast against 
the backdrop of much of modern professing Christianity. Their testimonies, of course, are, are vivid illustrations of the type of service that is called for in, in our text this morning. But the exhortation of this passage, I want to remind us, is not um, all uh, exclusive for would-be missionaries. Um, the, the exhortation is to everybody who, if you'll just drop down at the end of verse number 2, and you see that phrase again, prove, the exhortation is for all who want to prove, notice the rest of that, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There, there is a proving process to discern and experience God's very best for your life and, and living out the will of God for your life. And what we noted last week in the passage is that it begins with the assumption that the readers are true believers. They are, if you go back to verse 1 in the opening words, they are brethren by the mercies of God through, as we saw in Romans and elsewhere, through a saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So last week we asked the question throughout the message, do you possess a saving faith? There are professions of faith, James says, that don't save. Paul says it as well in 1 Corinthians. It's possible to believe in vain. Do you possess a saving faith? Because all of the rest of what moves forward here is built on that assumption. You cannot experience God's very best for your life if you're not saved. If you don't know the Lord through a saving faith. And... The question that we want to follow up with this morning is, is pretty obvious. Do you possess a saving faith? Now this question, it's in that continued phrase. Notice in verse 1 again, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. And we're going to explore the rest of it as well. But the question this morning is, are you a living sacrifice? I, I think that you have known people that really even upon careful um, scriptural reflection, okay, you're not just taking the fact that they said I prayed a prayer when I was nine or whatever, and I don't mean to discount that. I thank God for saving me. I believe before I was five years old. So I'm not talking about just age. But you're not just saying, you know, you're not just, somebody says, well, I prayed whenever, and you're just taking him. I'm talking about upon careful scriptural reflection, you have reason to, to regard someone as a true believer. But you would still say that they have not experienced the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for their life. So they could answer yes to the question, do you possess a saving faith? But there's an additional question, and that is, are you a living sacrifice? That, that question is vital for all of us to wrestle with. Before we get to the sacrifice itself, it is worth noting that the apostle does draw attention to the basis of the sacrifice. And I'm saying that because he says, I beseech you, and what's the next word? I beseech, go ahead and say it with me, I beseech you, Therefore. And I know this is a, a, a kind of a trite statement, but it stands. When you see a therefore, you need to what? 
You need to find out what it's there for. It, 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 you know, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's there to draw our attention to something that's gone before. What is the basis of the sacrifice? And as you observe the broad developments of this book, you recognize that the therefore is not tying us back into just the end of chapter 11 alone. Because this is a significant turning point. And, and what you, this therefore is designed to connect us in to the big ideas of the whole book. And in Romans, they are pretty easy to follow, actually. Because from the end of chapter 1, right through the middle of chapter 3, the big idea is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And, and the theme is that on our own, we are all guilty sinners, and we are justly condemned. I'm using words that stand out in those chapters. Guilty sinners, justly condemned, and justly condemned to receive the wrath of God against our sin. That's Romans 1 through the middle of chapter 3. From the end of chapter 3 right through chapter 5, the big idea is the good news that there is a way for sinful men to be declared righteous in the sight of God. And it isn't through making up for our sin by a pile of good works. The way for sinful men to be declared right with God is through faith in the life and sacrificial death and even shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So guilty condemned sinners. But there is a way for those sinners to be right with God through faith in Christ. And then Romans 6, 7, and 8 The theme is that God's salvation in Christ doesn't just change my standing before God, but God's salvation in Christ changes my life, practically makes me more and more like Jesus, frees me more and more from the grip of sin. God's salvation justifies guilty sinners, sanctifies those sinners, and will ultimately glorify all of them. And then chapters 9 through 11 assure us that all of these realities are eternally secure. Because among other truths, they are rooted in the unbreakable love of God for the ones that he has saved. So this, therefore, is tying us back into all of that. Guilty sinners that nevertheless can be right with God through faith in Christ and and not just positionally changed, but life changed, and you can rest in eternal security. I mean, it's phrases like this Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or two verses later, that God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the basis of the sacrifice is more than just the mercies of God, you know, in general. But but the basis is this further assumption in chapter 12 here in verse 1. We noted again this morning, and that is that these readers are personal recipients of this saving grace that applies all of that to a man's life. And, And last week we did... Uh, Really, in keeping with the the Bible's own call, we emphasize man's responsibility to believe. 
But I think it is also important for us this morning to acknowledge that apart from God being gracious and merciful to us, none of us would be here today. Apart from his arrangement of circumstances to put us under the sound of the preaching of the word of God, and a part of the Holy Spirit's work to convince of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and, and draw us to the Savior. The witness even of Romans chapter 3 is that we are all so wicked sinners that we would be hellbound without hope in, in this world. It's not just, I can say it this way, it's not just on the basis that God so loved the world that we're exhorted to present, present ourselves a living sacrifice. It's on the basis of the fact that Jesus loved even me when I was sinking deep in sin. His love left in me. That's the basis. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to you in Christ, to you, that's the basis of the sacrifice. And it's on that basis that we consider then the presentation of the sacrifice. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present, present your bodies a, a living sacrifice. This, this presentation is, first of all, we know, very practical. And it's very practical, just witnessed to by that simple expression, we're to present our, our body. Now, some commentators suggest that, that the expression body and the Greek word translated body here is a reference to the whole person, and there's no doubt that it sometimes is. And I also don't doubt that the whole person is involved in the rest of what is called for here. But I want to show you another reference that I think calls for an emphasis that I'm burned that we don't miss. All right, so we're just going to go back a couple pages to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to look at verse number 13. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. And right away we see a connection. Notice, neither yield ye your members. And you probably want to even circle that. And, and when you get a chance, even go back to chapter 12 and write it in there. But the word yield is the same Greek word as the word present in Romans chapter uh, 12. All right? But that's not the only connection. Because here, it says in verse 13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves, same again, yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members... As instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, what members is he talking about? Okay, this isn't yield. Uh, you know, yield your the, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that are members of the same church as you, right? <laughs> All right, Lord, I yield them to you. Okay, or this isn't yield my family members, right? This is yield your members of your body this is can i go back to chapter 12 this is present your what your bodies all right so brethren the members that again bear with me on this but we need to take some time to sometimes you know familiar phrases to stop and think through this is as practical as yielding my hands 
right? That's a member of my body. Or my feet. Or my ears. Or my eyes. My mouth. Okay? The, the presentation is for me to do this, for ye to yield, for me to yield my hands. For me to yield my feet and, and, and my eyes and my ears. This is like take some inventory of, of your body and just say again, God, these are the hands that you gave me. And, and these, these hands are part of the body that you further redeemed to yourself through the shed blood of your son. And so I yield them as it were, back to you, that I won't touch anything in any way that you'd not be pleased with. These feet are, are, are members of the body you gave me and you redeemed. And so, again, I yield my feet that I'd not go anywhere that you'd not be pleased with. And by your help, I'll go wherever you'd have me to go with these feet. And, and I recognize that these eyes are part of the body that you bought with a great price, the temple of the Holy Ghost. And, and so, with your help, I'll not look on anything you'd not be pleased with. And I'll not listen with these ears to anything that you'd not be pleased with. And with your help, these lips are yielded to you. And I'll not say anything you'd not want me to say. And as you help me, I want to say everything you'd have me to say. It's as practical as taking inventory of this body and yielding it to the Lord. And I'm highlighting and underscoring that emphasis this morning because what we're supposed to yield to the Lord is not our, our intentions or our you know, kind of sympathies. I mean, as, as, as God's people, hearing of what God's done for us in Christ with the Spirit of God inside of us, making Christ real, we are sympathetic with the best things. And we intend to do so many things for God. And so often it stays on the level of our intentions and our sympathies and we don't actually get around to doing it with our body. And noting that, again, it's the presentation of our bodies, I think can also, can also help remind us that, you know, the, the idea that the spirit can be, you know, sincerely right with God, even though the body bears the marks of rebellion, that, that's a lie. You know, as one man said, the, the body is the medium by which the spirit expresses itself. And, and you absolutely, you could be outwardly correct while being inwardly corrupt for a time. And that's what, I mean, that's hypocrisy, whatever else you want to use. But brethren, to be inwardly correct and outwardly living in persistent disobedience is impossible. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. For from within proceeds evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and blasphemy. I mean, you can go on. And in time, the external 
will be conditioned by the internal and what is inside will become obvious. And that's why the text can call for us to give a very practical yielding of our bodies to the Lord and saying, God, this body, all that I do with it, all the parts of it, it's yours. Use it for your honor and glory. And what the rest, uh, the rest of what we have back in chapter 12 in this, in this verse are some qualifications of the sacrifice. And so we've had the basis and, and the presentation and now some qualifications. He says that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And, and when I think of that, just the very fact that there are some qualifications to the sacrifice, and, and we're talking in terms of, of sacrifice, we can think back to the sacrificial system and all that was a foreshadowing of, of Christ's coming. I'm just reminded that God has never accepted any and every sacrifice done in his name. Right? I mean, all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, it says that the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering, he what? He had not respect. I mean, that's Genesis. If I go to the last book of the Old Testament, as we have in our English Bibles, it's the book of Malachi. And, and God is still saying in Malachi to his people, you, you brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick. Thus you brought me an offering. Should I accept this at, at your hand, says the Lord? And he actually kind of says to, to the people, would you have served this to the governor? You know, the, the governor of your land, you're going to give him the leftovers? I don't think so, but that's what you're giving me? So, so from, again... From Genesis right to Malachi, there's been qualifications to the sacrifice. And here, even as the Apostle Paul challenges us as New Testament believers, there's some qualifications. It's not just sincerity. The first one, as we have it here in our text, is that our sacrifice should be living. And, and I know that the way we have it recorded, it's more difficult to see living as parallel to holy and acceptable. But they are all three qualifiers. So it could, it could be understood as present your bodies as sacrifice and then you have living, holy, acceptable as the qualifications. And in reference to that first qualification, that it be living, uh, again, Bible students and commentators are, are not exactly sure. Some point out the contrast to the animal sacrifices. And the animal sacrifices were actually slain before they were offered. And, and so if you think of it in those terms, living as opposed to a dead sacrifice, that God intends for our presentation of ourselves not to be a one-time event, right? But something that is living and ongoing. That is absolutely true. I, I, I suggest that there is more to it than that. Because, and I keep making this connection to chapter 6. Go back to chapter 6. And we've already seen the, the concepts of yielding and presenting your members, your bodies. But look back at verse 11. That kind of issues into some applications the apostle makes there. In verse 11 he says, Likewise, 
Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but, what? Alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if this is the the focus, the living sacrifice, that is living living this new life in Christ, the idea here, the application here, is that it should not be, you know, your agenda, your motives, your desire, even your strength at issue as you serve. Your service should be done in such a way that it's obvious I'm dead to myself and I'm alive unto and through God. And, and what people desperately need to see when I serve is not who? They don't need to serve me. They need to see him. They need to see Christ through me, even as I serve. That's a first qualification. The second qualification back in chapter 12 Present our bodies a living sacrifice. And the next one is holy. And this is that, that word that talks about set-apartness. And sometimes it could be talking about being set apart from any limitation of any kind. In other cases, it's more specific to kind of an ethical idea. And so that would be set-apartness from defilement. Set apartness from defilement. Now, if, if we're to think of it in those lines, again, some application for us is that our, our service is not pleasing to God when you know, we, we go on evangelism in, in some fashion. Maybe I'm offering prayer requests. I can sing in the choir. I could teach in Sunday school. And I could do all of that while there is perverseness in my own heart and, and known sin that is not separated from. You know that there is no such thing in the Bible as, as penance, right, when it comes to earning salvation. But the same thing is true in regards to our service. Some people try to make up for sin by greater activity. I know this will blow your mind, but in a church that I served in as an assistant pastor just a few years before me, and I didn't know all the details till I got there, an assistant pastor in that church had been arrested for being a thief. And one deacon that was telling me said, I was blown away. I've been out on evangelism with that assistant pastor repeatedly. He was known as one of the most aggressive, committed investors in soul winning that that the church knew. But to make some extra money, to buy some extra things, he literally had been going into people's garages and was stealing things out of people's garages and then turning around and selling them. And once he got into it, he had done it repeatedly and he was making a fair amount of money. And when they had opportunity after he was finally arrested to talk to him, what became clear was that the way he was attempting to deal with his often guilty conscience about his thievery was to go out soul winning 
as if to go out soul winning was going to somehow deal with the guilt of him being a thief. I know that's, I mean, it's at least hard for me to imagine that somebody's head could get there. But there are believing people. There are people at least that have been exposed to light and to truth and know right and wrong. And they think that the way to make up for what I've been blowing it with God is to get really involved in service and do as much service as I can. But whether that's the motivation or not, if we're going to serve in a way that is pleasing to God, I'm really presenting my body and I'm meeting the qualifications, then I can't just keep going on in public service while I've got private corruption in my life. And I keep letting the private sin remain and then I walk in front of God's people and the lost and attempt to serve. Now one of the qualifications is... That it be holy. That, that there is in my own heart and life a real seeking of God to deliver me from my sin and keeping a short sin account. Our sacrifice must be living. It must be holy. And then notice this last phrase. It must be acceptable um, to God. It must, be, it must be pleasing to God. And, and the idea there even of, of it being pleasing to God and acceptable to God is that, again, it's just trying to adjust us that this is about doing what is really pleasing to God. So, you know, the church marketing movement, if I think about it on a big level, ha- has been trying to make ministries acceptable to the common center. And in some cases have packed out the churches doing so. But, but in the process have betrayed the head of the church and sold out the gospel. Down to a more personal level, especially when I was a youth pastor, from time to time I would ask a teen about their relationship to the Lord in a general way, or in some cases I would ask about something more specific. And, and from time to time I would get this kind of response. You know, I'm satisfied where I am. You know, how are things going? Well, I think I'm okay. I'm, I'm satisfied with where I am. But the key is not, am I satisfied? You know, I've done some thinking about it in light of my circumstances, whatever. I, I think I'm giving God. You know, I'm, I, I think it's reasonable what I've given him. But the issue isn't, am I satisfied with where I am? The issue is, Is God satisfied with where I am? Is my sacrifice really acceptable unto God? Is it really pleasing to God? God, am I really doing what you would have me to do? These are are the qualifications. And then we need to draw attention in this last phrase to to what I have labeled the heart of the sacrifice. So we have the basis, the presentation, the qualifications... And again, I have the heart, and I'm, I'm saying that because I'm not sure I have the right label. I, we, we maybe could even say the heartbeat of, of the sacrifice. But what I'm referring to is this last phrase that you can see, which is your reasonable service. 
The, the particular word that is translated here, service, and there are a couple of Greek ones, but this one actually refers not to what you would think of as just kind of doing hands-on ministry. This is actually a word that refers back to the priestly performance of sacred duty in, in what was public worship. All right, so the word has as much to do with worship as it does with service. So what he's saying is, again, on the basis of what God has done for you in Christ, present yourself very practically with these qualifications, and ultimately, the heartbeat behind all of it is do it as an act of worship to the Lord. That the heart of one who sacrifices, if you will, his body in the manner that we've been considering is, is not even somebody, because you could, you could get out of the phrase the way we're thinking of it, you could get out of it, do your duty. Right? I mean, this is just your reasonable duty. But that's not where he's, that's not what he's targeting. Don't do this as an act of just doing your duty. Do this as an act of worship. Do it because you're consumed with the greatness of God. Do it because you want to communicate adoration and ascribe honor that is due him. And, and you want to bring glory to the unrivaled, unique excellence of your God. This is the heart of it because, because God has become all in all. My life is not my own. And I'm glad for it to be God's. And I want him to get honor. I want to make a big deal about him. That's why this isn't a hard thing like knuckle under. This is, this is my pleasure to be able to somehow communicate honor to God and worship him. Through giving myself to him this way. And you know that it, over the course of church history, it is the lives of, of men and women that have been saturated with these truths that, that the Lord is used to reach their generation and inspire us generations later. And I, I started the message by noting those qualities in, uh, in these that went to reach the Aka Indians. But there are some other unique things that the Lord was doing in the background there. 1934, so I mentioned Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, 1949. They gave their lives in 1956, but I'm going back to 1934. There was a young couple that were recent graduates of Moody Bible Institute. And they had been married just over a year, and they had a little girl, and they were assigned by the China Inland Mission to a remote province and a mission station that had been previously abandoned because of communist insurrection, but the mission, from the reports they had, believed that the conditions were relatively safe, and John and Betty Stam went there, and, and they were there actually for just less than a month when communists took them captive. And after taking them from one village to another, with the parents at one point hearing a soldier say, we're going to have to kill that baby, it's weighing us down. They were put under house arrest. And then one morning without any prior warning, they were paraded through the village so that all the townspeople could watch them taken up to a little clump of, clump of trees. 
and the sword flashed and, and took the head of John Stam and after that of Betty Stam. But after their lives were taken, people, of course, went to their belongings. And they found that sometime previous to that, as a student, Betty had written in her journal, Lord, I'm quoting from Betty's journal, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and I accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with the Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. And work out thy whole will in my life at any cost now and forever. Now there is, there is a very real sense in which Betty Stam died before she became a martyr at the hands of, of the communists in China. But what's very interesting, too, a little flow of thought I'm trying to follow, is that ten years after the death of Betty Stam, a, a ten-year-old girl read that excerpt from her journal, and she was so impressed that she penned those words and put them in her own Bible. And that ten-year-old was Elizabeth Howard, um, the, the future wife of Jim Elliot. And she had been attempting, by God's grace, to live that out since she was a 10-year-old girl. Challenged by the testimony of others. One testimony of uh, the surrender of a living sacrifice not only impacts our generation, but impacts generations to come for the cause of Christ and the glory of God. And so I want to ask again this morning, first of all, are you saved? And I'm really not asking that just because that's the thing to do when, when you know, we review. You, you cannot know the reality of living in the will of God for your life if you're not saved. If the Spirit of God is, is pricking you about that. There's something he wants to do in your heart. But if you are here this morning saved, are you a living sacrifice? And, and I do want to be careful to note that though we're referring to these areas of obedience as steps, and there's a couple more we're going to be looking at, Lord willing, throughout this month, but, but I do not mean to imply that they're kind of one-time one steps that allow a person you know, to arrive at a certain level. There's no need for any additional steps. Because this very thing that we're talking about this morning, there, there, is, there is in reality an element of surrender in all genuine salvation. There's an element of that. And the yielding that, that we're speaking of this morning and this presenting that we're talking about must be repeated again and again. And, and as Second Peter says, kind of chorus together with the other steps that we're going to look at in verse number 2. So the truth is that just saying, you know, well, I dedicated my life to Christ at camp two years ago is not going to cut it if I'm, pers if I'm presently not yielding a life that, uh, not living a life that's yielded to the Lord. And here's the reality, that no matter what has gone on in my past to this point, a presently yielded body 
is a necessary ingredient to proving the will of God, to proving the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, to knowing God's very best for my life. So, dear friend, on the basis of the mercies of God to you in Christ, are you a living sacrifice? God's not, God's not wanting something hard from you. He's wanting something for you. Certainly, he'll be worshipped and glorified. But in him being worshipped and glorified through you being a living sacrifice, he's telling you, I want to give you the very best that I have for your life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and... Just a few moments here of silent reflection. There's certainly more to be done than just a brief time, but even some opportunity to be challenged about the inventory, not just my intentions and my sympathies, what I plan to do, would love to do, but but what's really happening. with my hands and my feet and my eyes, my ears, my lips, 